0: Hey folks, and welcome to episode 172 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to remind you about our newsletter, Inmedius Race. In Medias Race means in the middle of things, and it's our weekly newsletter, which is a one-stop digest of Theopolis videos, podcasts, news about events, and posts from our website. If you'd like to sign up, there's a link down there in the show notes for you, and you can also sign up on our website, theopolisinstitute.com. With that, we really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes, and Alistair Roberts is joining us remotely from Durham, England. Today we're talking about the readings for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost for uh, 2018, that's October 14th. And the readings for this coming Sunday are Amos 5, verses 6 through 7, and then verses 10 through 15. Uh, those are the assigned verses, but we'll be talking about the surrounding part of the passage as well. Uh, the epistle reading is Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 19, and the gospel reading is Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. We'll start with the Amos passage, and, and let me say a few words about um, Amos in general. Uh, Amos is a prophet in the northern kingdom. It's during the divided kingdom period, uh, rather late in the period. He's uh, prophesying during the time of Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, uh, king of Israel. That's Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. Jeroboam I was the very first king of the northern kingdom, and then toward the end of uh, the history of the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam II appears and you have a a, a rapid decline after his reign. And Amos is addressing the northern kingdom, and he's famous for addressing typical prophetic concerns of idolatry and uh, unfaithfulness to the covenant. But uh, even more than that, uh, Amos is uh, famous for focusing on the the injustices that existed within the northern kingdom uh, at the time that he's prophesying. He starts out with a chapter and a half uh, where uh, each of the uh, paragraphs of uh, the oracles begins with, uh, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of X and for four, uh, and he runs through Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, um, and uh, this is Rhetorically, this is a, a kind of uh, Nathan ploy. Uh, he gets all of his Israelite uh, audience cheering along because the Lord is going to judge these Gentile nations for their sins. And then beginning in 2.4, he speaks of Judah, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, that might raise a few cheers in the northern kingdom. But then verse 6 of chapter 2 for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So he begins with the Gentile nations and the Lord's judgment there, but then he comes down and focuses on uh, the same evils that are being perpetrated by by the people of God, and he condemns the people of God and warns them about the coming judgment. Now, the section that we're looking at is in a, uh, a part of a series of uh, sections that all begin with the word Shema, Shema. Um, There's a a Shema section to Amos, and then there's a woe section. Uh, Chapter 3 begins, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. Uh, Chapter 4 begins, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Uh, Chapter 5 begins, hear this word which I take up as a dirge. Uh, And uh, those are are not repetitions of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, but they're allusions back to the Deuteronomy 6 passage, uh, which is uh, kind of a confession of ancient Israel's faith in the one God, the incomparable God of Israel. So Amos, has, Amos begins with this, these condemnations of the Gentile nations focusing finally on Judah and Israel. And then he calls them back to the covenant with these, uh, these various passages that begin with uh, the verb uh, shama. Chapter 5 begins with a dirge. This is a, one of the pieces of evidence that uh, uh, scholars have used to show that the uh, prophets are announcing the death of Israel. Uh, they do warn people. They do encourage people to turn from their sins. Often their message is one, uh, it's kind of a a death certificate. Uh, Israel is going to die. Amos is already singing a dirge over, over the house of Israel, over the northern kingdom, even though the northern kingdom will not be destroyed for a number of generations. But already they're doomed, and he's already singing a dirge. And their hope is not in any kind of repentance that they can muster. Their hope is in a God who can raise the dead, uh, the God of Abraham who began uh, Israel's history with uh, the miracle child Isaac. Uh, so uh, this begins as a dirge over the northern kingdom. And the dirge is being sung because the northern kingdom has devoted is devoted to idols. He mentions Bethel and Gilgal, Bethel, one of the places that Jeroboam the first had set up. Uh, and he also uh, pronounces this death sentence and sings this dirge because of the injustices that have become so rampant within the Northern Kingdom. Uh, verse seven, uh, part of the reading for, the, for this Sunday, uh, refers to, uh, warns that they have turned justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Um, he rebukes them and reproves them for uh, what happens in the gates. In verses 10 through 13, the gates are the place where uh, judgments are passed, where courts meet, and he says that they, the gates are full of injustice. Uh, And then in verses 14 and 15, his message to them is to uh, turn from this injustice and to establish justice in the gates. Uh, And the reason why they're facing this death sentence is because they have indulged these injustices.
2: The imagery within verses 8 and 9, which aren't included within the, um, the main reading, but I think we're including, the heavens and the earth and the waters and the sea, there's a, a cosmic order that is described here, and I think it's significant that God relates that cosmic order and the upholding His upholding of that cosmic order with the upholding of the the order of justice within the land. That there is a breaking down of this order. The heavens are um, the bodies in the heavens are going awry in their courses when there is not justice upheld upho- in the courts. And that injustice is causing the land to be ripe for judgment, for fire to come through it and no one to quench it, or for the waters of the sea to be called and poured out over the face of the land. There is going to, or the blinding flash to destroy the the stronghold. There is a cosmic order and the justice of the social order is something that's related to this. And when that fails, God, who upholds the cosmic order, acts.
1: Right, and, and specifically, it refers to, uh, yeah, you said it's a, it's a, the uh, triple-decker universe with the heavens, the Pleiades and Orion, uh, two constellations that are said to be creations of God. Uh, the sea and the earth are all under judgment. The three zones of the creation, uh, and the God who, the God who set up this cosmic order. It's in his hands. He can also dismantle it. The God who set up a covenantal order in Israel and uh, is uh, the foundation of the social order and the political order that they have, uh, he can also he can also dismantle it. Now, the specific the specific things they're being condemned for are uh, mistreatment of uh, the the vulnerable and the poor. Uh, you impose heavy rent on the poor. Exact attribute tribute of grain from them. Uh, that's uh, that uh, abuse also appears in uh, the legal system. Uh, transgressions include accepting bribes against the poor, turning aside the poor in the gate. Again, the gate is the, the courtroom in ancient Israel. And so turning aside the poor at the gate means that they aren't allowed to present their case, they're not given justice. Uh, and because of that, the Lord threatens that he's going to um, not allow Israel not allow the Israelites to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They're going to build houses, but then somebody else is going to come along and occupy them. Uh, They're going to plant vineyards, but somebody else is going to enjoy the fruit of them. Uh, This is an an inversion of the conquest. Uh, In the conquest, Israel came into the land, and they inherited cities and houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. Uh, But the Lord is threatening Israel that he's going to reverse that and send in another people that are uh, going to do the same thing to Israel. If Israel becomes like the Canaanites, then they're going to suffer
2: the same judgment as the Canaanites did. Verse 13 is one that stood out to me. Therefore the prudent keeps silent at that time, for it is an evil time. And the silencing of the wise in a context of rampant foolishness. And I think we can often have a sense of the resonance of that with our own context in certain respects, that there is such uh, an abundance of foolishness on all sides that the wisest thing often to do is to just hold your counsel because it's not going to be received.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, you could say that's part of the judgment that um, Israel is deprived of the counsel of the prudent uh, because, and part of the reason is I think verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate, they abhor him who speaks with integrity so, um, there are those who are like Amos, who rebuke the injustices of Israel, uh, who reprove in public settings in the courtrooms and the public squares, but these prophets are shouted down, they're hated, uh, they're treated with hostility, and so insofar as they go silent that that means that Israel is being deprived of the word that would uh, turn them from sin and would give them life. Uh, so, you know, there's... A silence, but it's partly because of the opposition of uh, of the uh, of the powerful to voices that would uh, the voices that would uh, raise rebukes and reproofs against uh, against Israel. I mean, I, this is a the whole of Amos and this passage uh, in particular. The whole of Amos is a kind of a leading example of the concerns that the prophets have with justice, uh, and this is a something of a tricky thing to talk about in our current setting because uh, uh, there's uh, so much debate on the content of justice. Um, There might be a tendency for uh, Christians of a certain political stripe to uh, refrain from the uh, strong language of the prophets uh, about justice, about mistreatment of the poor, because they don't want to be identified with certain leftist movements. Uh, But we, we can't let the distortions of uh, justice of social justice silence us about what the scriptures say or or blind us to what the scriptures are saying that the the prophets are constantly talking about this kind of matter they're constantly talking about issues of public justice and i think one of the keys to uh, getting it right uh, and not um, uh, not falling uh, prey to the to the uh, rhetoric of uh the distorted rhetoric of, that you find in the current current climate and current discourse is to recognize that the prophets are always rooting their prophecies and their critique of injustice, their attacks on the injustices in the law. Uh, they are bringing the Torah to bear on the situation situations that uh, they they face. So, for example, the, uh, you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact bribe a bribe a tribute of grain from them. There are specific laws that have to do with, in the Torah, there are specific commandments that have to do with uh, treatment of the poor and care for the poor, making sure that the poor are not abused. If you loan to the poor, you shouldn't keep his cloak as collateral because he needs it to keep himself warm at night and the Lord will hear him if you abuse him. Uh, in verse 12, it talks about accepting bribe, bribes against The righteous and turning aside the poor at the gate. There's explicit laws that have to do with uh, ensuring that the poor get their hearing in court. Uh, The law requires that uh, judges be impartial, that they ignore social status, that they don't give uh, preference to either the rich or the poor. Uh, But that's actually an advantage to the poor because the tendency of, um, uh, in ancient Israel would have been to uh, please those who are powerful. The tendency of many systems is to please those who are powerful. So the, these, uh, uh, the prophetic concern with social justice has roots in the law. And I think recognizing that is part of the uh, important part of uh, uh, keeping our bearings in the midst of uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, 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 noise about social justice
2: in our day. There's definitely a danger of seeing justice merely as a means of reversing certain power structures. And when we've lost a clear sense of truth or some sort of transcendent standard, which is provided in the law and elsewhere, and in the face of God that we stand as those who must give account of ourselves, when that is lost sight of, justice can so easily devolve into um just trying to reverse existing power structures without regard to whether they are just or not. And what we have here, I think, is something that's very different from just that, um, this very antagonistic form of social conflict, which is often takes the name of justice, but doesn't actually have some standard that is higher than just the dynamics of power the dynamics of power within society that all truth ultimately devolves to power any statement of beauty any statement of goodness these are power games but yet when we have a standard of justice we can we can appeal to something beyond that and also it leads to a i think also a sense of wisdom and the proper way of treating things so we talk a lot about justice, and we shout a lot about justice, <laughs> but part of what justice means is knowing when to keep silent so that the processes of justice can be effective, knowing when to when to um, remove ourselves from the conversation, when to um, recognise that the crowd needs to allow the processes of justice of the court to have their effect. And these are difficulties that I think we particularly have within a context where social justice can so easily be a matter of personal branding, of presenting yourself as having the right sort of opinions, of being on the right side, rather than actually being concerned that justice is actually served in a a proper manner, according to a proper procedure. And when that concern starts to eclipse, often it becomes about us, Rather than about God's order being established and maintained,
1: I think one of the one of the uh, effects of pursuit of justice within framework that's that basically excludes God is that um, human beings are left as the sole agents of justice. If there's going to be justice, it's got to be up to us, uh, and uh, we can't we can't um, rest in with, without without trust and hope in a final judgment, without trust in God's arrangement of things his ultimate arrangement of things we're left with um, with our own resources to try to establish right order to try try to right wrongs that's an impossible task <laughs> we can't uh, we can't right all the wrongs we can't even always know what was right and what was wrong and my brother is is an attorney and uh, he says it's uh, typically the case when he has been through uh, a whole uh, sometimes a, a, a several years of uh, discussion, negotiation, litigation. He comes to the end of it, and he still doesn't know what happened. And he's been deeply involved in the case, and he's seen all the evidence one way or another, and still is left with certain questions that he simply cannot answer that are crucial questions for determining uh, what the what the right outcome would be. That's impossible to live with <laughs> if you think that we've got we're the ones that have to establish justice. We can't just rest in uh, the imper- imperfect justice that we can achieve. And trust God to make up the difference and to, to establish an ultimate justice at the end. Um, we have to be frantic about establishing justice on our own.
2: But yet at the end of this passage, there is that emphasis upon a proper heart attitude towards justice. That we're supposed to seek good, not evil. And to hate um, evil and love good. That it's not just a matter of having good social systems. But it must be something that's at the very core of the way that we live, the way that we, the values that drive us in our day to day practice and in our relations to each other. And often I think that's one of the areas where we can fail. We can think very much about justice in the context of the spectacle of the nation and its affairs or certain social antagonisms and in that context. But this is something that should be expressed in every single part of our lives, in the ways that we relate to our neighbour, in the way that we relate to our employee, to our families. And in all of these regions of life, it should be something that is expressed as a deep heart commitment to justice, not just a matter of um, some appeal that plays very well in the national stage, but doesn't actually play out within our our concrete contexts, and our concern for our neighbor. And that concern for the poor is not just about um, providing adequate social systems, although it is very much concerned with that. It's also concerned about our regard for that person.
1: Yeah, and, and just, to, just to clarify a bit, uh, in response to your comments, uh, trust that God is ordering things, is not a, that's never a prescription for complacency. In the face of injustice, it's a ground for hope, uh, and it's also a ground for patience. It's a ground for uh, humility and recognizing that um, there are limits to what uh, what we can uh, what we can achieve. But it's not a gra- it's not a ground for complacency. Amos, like all the other prophets, insists that uh, the people of God should be pursuing justice, actively pursuing justice. Not uh, it's not a, a a kind of passive hope. That God will sort things out. One of the ways that God establishes justice is through human beings.
2: And that orientation towards justice is also something that really drives our prayers and our commitment to justice. If we truly have that love, we will be those who seek for Christ to come, for his will to be done on earth. All these sorts of things that call us beyond just the immediate solving of our present issues. But when we see situations that we just cannot resolve, we cannot see it, it will draw us even further into a call for, for Christ's kingdom, for God to act, to intervene, to establish the justice that we cannot.
1: We've been talking about the prophets. Uh, Jesus is, in the tradition of the prophets, he's identified as a prophet. He is um, uh, compared to different prophets in his ministry, both implicitly by the gospel writers and by people who are at the time observing his ministry. Uh, And Mark 10, both in in the reading that we're doing this week and in uh, subsequent readings, uh, we see Jesus functioning as a prophet. In the text for this uh, particular week, uh, we're looking at Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. uh, And this is the story of of a rich man who asked Jesus Uh, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. uh, And uh, when he says that he has done that, Jesus responds by telling him he needs to sell all that he has and give it to the poor in order to have treasure in heaven. Right on the heels of that in the section of Mark 10 that we'll look at next time, uh, Jesus uh, condemns uh, or uh, warns the wealthy, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. Uh, it's like a, a camel going through an eye of a needle in order to enter the kingdom. Jesus is giving some of the same warnings to the people of his time as the prophets did. Uh, warnings about their their abuse of uh, the vulnerable and the poor. Uh, warnings about trust in wealth. Uh, and uh, conversely, uh, calling people to use their wealth not for accumulation, not for uh, storing up earthly treasure, but for straight storing up treasure in heaven by uh, supporting and giving to the poor.
2: The way he lists the commandments, um, you've been working on the commandments recently, and I'd be interested to hear your remarks on this. I think it's N.T. Wright who observes that he lists the um, commandments from 5 to um, 9, and he does not mention the earlier ones, the duty towards God. And then the response to the response of the rich young ruler is the one thing that he lacks is to sell what he has, give it to the poor, and then follow Christ, which is a calling to the Godward direction of the law. Yeah, I think that's
1: uh, that makes sense to me. That uh, there's a Jesus performs a kind of jujitsu, gives him gives him a set of commandments that he can commit to. I think the other the other dimension of that, though, would be that I think even uh, what we think of as the second table of the law is implicitly about uh, conforming to uh, God's character, uh, Yahweh's character. Although the second half of the Decalogue doesn't mention Yahweh's name, Yahweh is uh, implied. In his I mean, he's speaking the Decalogue, so He's uh, obviously his authority is uh, the basis for these commandments. Uh, and I think the commandments are all, all have to do with uh, uh, different forms of assault on the image of God. I think that we talked about this in a previous podcast. The sixth commandment, the the first first commandment of the second group of commandments, second half of the command uh, of the Decalogue, is a kind of uh, a summary of the second half of the Decalogue. You shall not murder. You shall not kill. And all the other commandments have to do with various forms of assault on the image of God. Uh, Sometimes an assault on, uh, not an assault on the person so much as on this, an assault on property, an assault on marriage, an assault on reputation, but they're all assaults in the image of God. So even even in the second set of commandments, uh, he's he's not keeping properly unless he's unless he's uh, worshiping God. And I, I think also the the thing that uh, Jesus does here too is uh, that a point is making. The, you can say the general point that the Reformers all make in their treatments of the law. Luther talks about this. Um, Calvin says this. The Westminster Confession makes this point that the commandments, although stated negatively, always imply certain positive duties. And so the Westminster longer, uh, Larger Catechism goes through not only the pro- things that are prohibited by each commandment, but it goes through all the responsibility and obligations that are implied by the commandments. Luther does something similar in his, um, in his um, Larger Catechism or uh, whatever the the uh, Lutheran Catechism is called not the not the short one, but the larger Catechism. So Jesus does a si- similar kind of thing here. It's uh, refraining from those evils is not adequate. That's not the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes. Uh, it's a righteousness that is a positive righteousness that in- involves uh, acts of mercy and um, and uh, gift uh, gift giving.
2: The contrast between what Christ calls him to the and. Um selling what he has and giving to the poor and having treasure in heaven, that he has profound potential to do that with the wealth that he possesses. But yet what is remarkable and tragic is that his possessions are actually the source of a great incapacity, that the very possessions that he has possess him, and he's not able to truly free himself from their clutch to be able to follow... Christ it's and although he can obey all these other commandments in some sense and Christ doesn't doesn't rebuke him say that he's not obeying those directly he he loves him but yet he is unable to take that that necessary step that one step to give up what he has give it to the poor and there i think we probably have an implicit reference to the one who gives to the poor lends to the lord that god is on the is concerned for the well-being of the poor and that those who take share that concern and express that with their resources and their wealth are actually giving their resources to god and god will repay them in heaven
1: yeah that's consistent with what the bible teaches generally about wealth and the Proverbs, um, I think, most especially highlight this, uh, that uh, the reason why the Bible warns so much about accumulation of wealth is that, that wealth has enormous power. In itself, it's a good, and it's a good that has a tremendous capacity to uh, make life satisfying. To protect us, both physically and uh, in all kinds of other ways. If you have enough money, you can uh, put yourself in a, uh, you can uh, house yourself, you can settle in a place where crime rate is low. You can buy a house in a gated community where there's uh, security guards that are patrolling the neighborhoods. If you don't have that kind of wealth, then you have fewer options about where to settle. If you, you, know, you get into legal trouble uh, and if you don't have any resources, you're vulnerable to the, uh, you, know, you, you can represent yourself in court or you can be assigned a court-appointed attorney, which are uh, legendarily, uh, not, not the, they're not the most skilled attorneys. If you have the wealth and you get into legal trouble, you have uh, capacity to hire the attorneys that can best get you off. So are all kinds of ways that wealth is a, a powerful protector. And which, that's the reason why it's so seductive. It's not because it's impotent. It's because it's so powerful, and it actually does accomplish all kinds of things. Um, That's why it has. We have to be particularly cautious about it, as a uh, because, as you say, it can uh, that that power can actually trap us. It um, it ultimately looks what looks like a great capacity to do things, and it is can also be a a trap and can be a can limit our options if we're if our hearts are devoted to our wealth. Uh, We're looking forward in a couple of weeks to having. uh, Jerry Boyer join us on the podcast. Uh, Jerry is a columnist for Forbes.com, uh, and he's uh, active in the an uh, Anglican church in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, he runs a, uh, a family based financial advisory company, and he's he's done a lot of work on Jesus teaching on wealth in the Gospels, and and done some very interesting things about the uh, conditions in Galilee at the time of Jesus' ministry, and how Jesus' minis- how Jesus' teaching. Uh, fits in with that, so we look forward to having Jerry in a few weeks to uh, address these some of these questions in more depth. Uh, let's let's move ahead to uh, the epistle reading and say a few words about that. That's in Hebrews three, verses twelve through nineteen. Starts out as an exhortation to uh, be careful and encourage one another in love and good works, so that we aren't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The background of this is, uh, or the the justification for this is a s- series of quotations from uh, Psalm ninety-five um, about the uh, wilderness uh, generation that fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They didn't enter into the kingdom. They didn't enter into the abundance of the land because of their unbelief. And the writer to the Hebrews is warning uh, the people of his time. Uh, the the, the uh, Christians of his time not to fall into that same fear and unfaithfulness. I think in the context, this is the wilderness would be uh, uh, analogous to the old covenant world that is uh, decaying, is about to come under judgment. Uh, the new, the new world that they should enter, the land that they should enter, the land that they should encourage one another to enter, is the land of the new covenant. The land of Christ's kingdom. Uh, concretely, it would mean. Uh, attachment to the body of Christ in the church.
2: In verse 13, it talks, or verse 14, it says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It's a verse I've often wondered about. Is there a sense in which it's making um, our knowledge or assurance of salvation contingent upon our perseverance? Is that the point that's being made? Um, because it seems to be reasoning backwards. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, it
2: does.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that um, I mean you could this this doesn't quite fit the particular language of the verse, but at a somewhat abstracted level, uh, I'd repeat Calvin's repeated claim: true saving faith is always persevering faith. It's faith that is uh, going to that perseveres to the end. So. True faith is proven over time, uh, and those who are partakers of Christ are those who uh, are finally partakers of Christ in a faith that pers- perseveres to the end. Um, I mean, it, on the again, this is more an abstraction from the, the uh, text itself. But I think that our assurance comes from the uh, reliability of God's promise. Our assurance is in God's, God's assurance to us that he will keep us to the end, and we we trust him to do that. It would I think it would be a mistake if we read this to mean that our confidence that we will persevere is the basis for our assurance. Again, God is God and His Word are the so- source of assurance. All that's again, those are more uh, theological uh, observations. They don't, they don't really fit what the text uh, what the text actually says, which I think is much more puzzling. The time frame is puzzling. We have become partakers. Uh, that seems to be a perfect, something that has actually, has been true, has become true. But we have been partakers if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance into the end, if we hold fast to the future. The past partaking of Christ is contingent on what, what's going to happen. So, that's uh, that, that temporal puzzle. Intriguing, and I don't have a good, good way of, uh, of thinking through that at the moment. I'm, I'm put in mind of an analogy that uh, Luther uses. Uh, I've cited it in a number of different articles and things where he's, he's actually talking about justification, but that's kind of beside the point, from the, the point I want to make. Uh, and he talks about uh, justification in terms of uh, the healing of, uh, a, of a sick person. Our present experience is based on the promise of our divine physician that he will heal us in the future. So it's as if you go to a really skilled doctor, you have a, a life-threatening disease, and the doctor says, I will take care of it, you're going to live. Um, and we trust that promise because we're confident of what the, what the physician is capable of doing and will do for us in the future. And Luther, Luther is using that analogy to describe uh, our experience as Christians. We, have, we are confident now of our healing, not because we're wholly healed now, because we're not but we're confident now of our healing because we are confident in the power of God to heal us uh, at the end. So there's this, again, there's this kind of temporal, uh, there's this temporal play. But I, th- and I think what one of the values of that analogy is that it places assurance where it belongs, which is uh, assurance in the Word of God to us. It's not assurance that's based on a, a kind of practical syllogism where we uh, look at our performance and our performance gives us assurance that we're that we're doing okay. Uh, I think instead, what we're what we're called to do constantly is to look uh, at uh, and to to rely on God's promise uh, as the foundation of our assurance.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of The Theopolis Podcast.